I'm the type of guy who likes to roam around. Let pretty girls out where you know that I'm around. I hug them and I squeeze them. They're all the same. I hug them and I kiss them. Cause I'm either all the same. They call me the wanderer. I'm the wanderer. I go around, 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 around. I'm the wrong from town to town. I'm doing life. Without a care, and I'm as happy as a clown. When I'm a two-fisted ride, I'm going all the way out. Yeah, I'm the type of guy that likes to roam around. I'm even in one place. I roam from town to town. I'm the wanderer. But I'm the wanderer. I roam around, 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 around. I'm the wanderer. I am the wanderer. I'm going around, 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 around. Did you know that there was a parody version of The Wanderer about Henry Kissinger released as a novelty song by a band called Foreign Intrigue? That is a fact, a true and baffling fact. And the voice in the song, he sounds like Henry Kissinger. He's got the accent and everything. I remember distinctly there's a, there's a bit where he goes, I look for NBC, they pay the bills for me. Anyway, absolutely baffling. A completely different conception of popular culture that we can't really consider nowadays. Uh Okay. Hi, guys. Gals. Folks, I know it's been a while. Been a while. I wanted to get back on here with you because I wanted to get going on the next book because I think uh, books are fun and I want to get going with another one. And the one I have in mind is First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship by Richard Lachman. R.I.P. We're doing another book by a dead guy. Uh, I don't know, uh, but that, that's how we've been doing it lately. And uh, the premise of the book is, is this out how the internal conflict within American, like within any uh, imperial headquarters in a, capital, in a capitalist concept, will eventually devolve into uh, people trying to get the last bit of crumb left in the, current, uh, in the present configuration rather than cooperate to change the configuration to be more sustainable. Because that means undermining their power and they won't have it. They simply won't have it. They can't have it. And it's not even a question of uh, their material interest. It's deep psychology. It's identity. If they are not uh, in charge, if they are not dominant figures in a social hierarchy, they have no sense of identity. So they will fight to the death to maintain this thing that's killing them. All right. So I came on first to say, we're doing it, baby. First class passengers on a second ship. I'll say first chapter. First chapter for uh, next week. Get into it soft. Eased into it like a bathtub. So next week, one chapter. First class passengers on a sinking ship by Richard Lockman. I just said it for the love of God. Uh, but so now with that done, I figured I could do a nice leisurely Q&A episode. 
I swear to God, I will not take one question and talk about it for two hours again. That was honestly kind of rude to give people the impression that there would be questions and answers, and then for me to just rant about Nazis and God for two hours. Somebody's asking about the Holy Roman Empire podcast series, uh, and I could say that we've recorded the first four episodes, um, and I honestly think it's the best stuff we've done in the podcast form, me and Chris. Uh, and it's for one thing, it's largely scripted. We talk throughout it, and we have some very good conversations, but it, the spine of it is, is a script that we both wrote. And uh, this is like the, me actually writing something for the first time on any length. And uh, I'm excited. I'm very excited to see what people think uh, because I feel very much like if they don't like it or do, I can stand behind it myself. So I'll just see. As Martin Luther allegedly but probably didn't say at the Edict of Worms, here I stand, I can do no other. But yeah, I really feel like I'm very, very gratified by what people thought about Hell of Presidents. But, and I'm absolutely amazed by what Chris did with Hell of Presidents. But I really feel like I kind of blew it a little bit personally. I feel like I kind of choked on it. It was too big of a project. I didn't know how to start. And I ended up reacting more than like really doing a good job, my end of shaping it. And I'm really glad the degree to which it is good is the degree to which Chris was able to corral me and, and get something out of it. Uh, so like, yeah. Uh, but I, this time I'm happy, uh, I'm hoping to to feel proud of my contribution, or at least more proud than I was. Although I do have, obviously stand by everything in there. I feel I just wish that I had uh, planned it out a little bit better beforehand. I was just sort of, frankly, panicking at the prospect, because it was this sort of quantum leap forward and uh, effort posting, I guess you would say. But it is going very well. Hope to have it start it, have it uh, debut by the end of the year. Yeah, see, if Hell of Presidents had been one president a day, I think uh, I think I could have done better there because the hardest part for me was just wrangling was periodization and 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 weaving in the biography to the to the broader structural stuff. Uh, because how do you do it? You know, how do you stuff these guys into this bag? And uh, initially I wanted it to just be like under uh, appreciated presidents people who had a lot of influence, even though we don't remember them. People like Henry, uh, people like Polk, Van Buren, of course, Truman. Uh, but it ended up to the point where we couldn't really contextualize those guys without talking about all the other guys. So it ended up being all of them. The one thing I am proud of from my end on that is that I feel like we really put a light on the crucial decades after the Civil War, which are the least studied and sort of debated and, and remembered culturally, but the most crucial. Uh, like, we really do not have a remaining uh, vernacular culture around the birth of capitalism in America after the Civil War. What we have instead is the Western tradition. While capitalism is being forged in the Eastern money vaults, there is this peripheral zone, this liminal space, where people can 
escape capitalism for the moment and try to survive uh, on its periphery. And then, we, of course, those are the stories we want to tell. We don't want to tell the stories of the gloomy imposition of capital over the, 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 the uh, vitality and, and individual will of people who were just being crushed by a machine. No, we wanted to imagine them free. We imagine the cowboy who is a laborer who works for wage but has the blue sky on top of him and doesn't punch it into a clock and is able to manage his specific day. And that's why Cowboy becomes the model. And that's why uh, the truck driver becomes the 70s echo of the model in the same era or in America later. Because it's this, it's a capitalist relation that is freed from the specific uh, regime of time control that is antithetical. Here's the crucial part antithetical to the American project. Free real estate means that Americans will not feel free unless they feel in control of their time. At least that was the original notion. And so what is the story of our enclosure and the end of our time control? It's not the incredibly bloody labor disputes. If you want violence, if all you want is some bloodshed, you don't have to go out west. My God, the bloodshed in in the uh, organization of the labor movement in the United States in the late 19th century, puts, puts all of the European, the Eastern, Western European labor movement in shame. Not a single European country had anything like the sanguinary violence of our labor movement. So that was happening, but that story isn't told because it all ends the same way. It ends with enclosure and destruction of the American self which we can't confront in our culture. That's why our culture is so fucking schizophrenic and demented and self-destructive. It cannot truly face its own condition in a putative democracy. So yeah, it's like we got, we got pioneers and cowboys and lawmen and bad men and and the other, the, the native, to be sub, subdued and then to be uh, eventually regarded as, as a human. And, and then the, the, the liberal psychoanalysis uh, can go on top. Like, think about that. Like, think of the ledger main. Think of the, the sleight of hand that happens there. You've got this reimagining of the late 1800s as this pageant of, of, uh, of colonial imposition and, uh, and pioneering. When in reality, it is the bringing into being of an unprecedented industrial behemoth that is able to knit together political power, cultural authority, technology in such a way that it can fucking wield the resources of a continent for the first time under a relatively united state apparatus. What's happening in the, in the periphery is essentially foregone. But it's there that all of our subjectivity rests. And that's where we do all of our critical left-wing critique of culture, a culture created by and dictated by uh, capital. And this is what I think Marx missed, but could not have known he was missing, and therefore we can't really blame him for it. It is the ability of cultural production to evince a self-conscious energy in the creation of consciousness. 
Like, I think that Marx assumed that to a degree, of course, everyone is being birthed into a bourgeois world if they're bourgeois, if they're subject to bourgeois labor, uh, social relations. But the technological uh, apparatus of consumer society that, that, that is, emerges is essentially, is essentially able to lobotomize huge percentages of the, of the laboring, working, proletarian, non-capitalist part of humanity. And genuinely make it make it impossible for them to perceive their own material self interest because of their deep visceral social integration into a spectacleized regime where they think they're participating in capitalism as a American, but they're actually in a nerf zone. They're they they have the bumper uh, pool the bumper. Uh, the bumpers are up in the bowling alley. And that's because of, the, of, of what the empire does. The empire temporally and spatially fixes the problem of, of too much exploitation in the center. And that allows the cultural pathogens to do their work, to condition generations of workers into one understanding of the world that cannot really, and this is essentially the Maoist third worldist settler's argument. The problem with all those arguments is that all of this is beside the point. They think that many of this matters. You still have to organize at the center of the empire because that's where the gears and the fucking levers and the buttons are. You aren't, you can't opt out of it regardless of this analysis. That's the problem with any of these sweeping analytical frameworks for understanding why we didn't get socialism in the 20th century. You can put all of them together and they can all point to real issues but uh, none of them can act independently. Everybody at the end of the day imagines themselves at a metaphysical level to not be the sort of social subject that Marx was living among when he wrote Capital. All right, let's not go off on an insane rant again. Let's uh, have another question. But the thing is, I do blame settlers, and I do blame Maoist third worldism, because the point of those things and the way that they are presented is to say, there is nothing to be done but me cultivating my virtue over you, the disgusting America Ken swine, by having a refined politics around this analytical point. Like, why are you supposed to read Settlers other than decide that everybody is a fucking worthless bourgeois uh, American uh, labor aristocrat? How does it inform meaningful fucking organizing? Because that's where, remember, if you're not, if you're not reading Settlers to organize, then what the hell are you doing? I think that we just have to strip ourselves of the comforting illusions that allow us to maintain this paralysis. And of course, I'm indicting myself in this too, as always. But that's like, those are the ones that I kind of ritually denounce in my ever-present moment of like self, 
analysis. Like, where am I resting my understanding of the world on a percept on a pedestal of uh, self-interest, narrow, self-destructive self-interest? And uh, you know, it sucks, but you got to do it. It's uh, what if you get the period in mind like I do, you got to do it. It's like doing the rosary. You, you have to work out your place in the world in such a way that you can sleep. And it's like, you really don't. It's kind of silly and selfish and, uh, and very egotistical to think that, you know, your actions really matter. But, you know, what else is supposed to matter? And we are all brought up believing that we have to find out if we are of the elect. Like, however we cloak it, it is this search for uh, specialness. This raising up out of a morass uh, that characterizes the the uh, the Protestant drive towards self actualization, turning the self into God, not submitting to God as a force greater than the self, but rather suborning the concept of God into our greater ego. Of course, this is most obviously reflected in the Mormon church, which is the quintessence of this phenomenon within terminal Western American Protestantism. Because that European Protestantism and Catholicism uh, are dead. Those aren't living faiths. It's, there's just another names for the same terminal narcissism, self-worship. Uh, but in America, that you know, living Protestantism is just a mystified religious and supernatural version of that egotism, of that narcissistic self-worship. Like, they look across the, the ocean at each other in horror, the sophisticated God-is-dead European and the, and the hardy, uh, earnest wasp uh, hillbilly, but they believe essentially the same thing, that they are the sole consciousness in the universe. Okay. So it says, seriously, what hope for our ch is for children to escape this? Well, see, that's the thing. I think the expectation that you get to dictate the world your kid gets at the, at the level people want that is a that is a fantasy. Like that is that is part of like the 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 complement of like consumer assumptions that undergird our lives. Like we are responsible for our child's destiny in a meaningful sense. And of course, like in good times, that allows you know otherwise anxious and unfulfilled suburban rich people to fret maddeningly about getting their kid into a good college, but. You know, now everybody is fixated on this apocalyptic endpoint because they cannot sustain a belief in systems as they exist. And that makes them now imagine instead, well, how do I guarantee that my child will not suffer like a horrible fate in the hand of some sort of, you know, massive economic or ecological crisis? And you can never, ever imagine that you can exempt anyone from anything in this life. You don't have, you're not in charge. You are not in charge. 
having children is an expression of like love in like the deepest sense. And, and raising a child is a ritual of, of love. What they have to deal with in the world is what we all have to deal with. And we all have the same responsibility to let that love guide us. And it can't guide us wrong, no matter, no matter if there is horror, no matter if there is decline and, and, horror, and, and, and destruction. Every, someone has to live through these times. And there's no reason that you should assume it can't it, it, that you get to opt out, you know, that we get to opt out. Like I do appreciate the Catholic like duty concept, but that's precisely why Catholicism is a dead letter because most American Catholics are just a variety of Protestants. Their only duty is to themselves, and they approach the religion as an opportunity to engage intellectually with their spirituality the same way that they engage intellectually with their politics, online, through thought experiments and virtue signaling. So I, I, I respect the like, duty-bound Catholics, like, but you're like the guys playing near my God to thee on the Titanic, and you should accept that, because... Anybody who's converting to Catholicism at this point is just strictly in it for the fucking memes. I only take religious conversion seriously if they are to Islam. And not one of the wacky sects either. Okay? You're not going to go fucking trick me with some Druze bullshit or, uh, oh, you're going to be a Sufi? No. I will accept 12 or Shia, the Shia of Iran, uh, and then mainstream Sunni. That's it. Nothing more esoteric than that. Because like, oh, oh, you're a Catholic now? Oh, you just want to argue about lore. And you want to argue about like uh, with if the Pope is epic or not. So this is just the 2020 election all over again. It's just a new vein. You're just looking for a new fucking vein on your arm, and all the other ones are just collapsed. And I know, who am I to talk? It's true. I'm trapped in this morass with everyone else. And all I can do is see whatever other people are doing and say, is that a good way to do it or a bad one? And I see this and I say, it doesn't seem good to me. It doesn't feel authentic, but I don't know. I, I can't, who am I to cast any judgments on anybody else? From the outside, it just looks uh, unpersuasive. Because if, if you want to just keep scoring points, it's too easy. And you're talking about, like, what about Catholicism among Latinos? Catholicism is declining among Latinos, too, in the United States and in all of Latin America in favor of westernized, Americanized, Protestant, uh, evangelical, Pentecostal snake handling. That's what uh, Bolsonaro is. He's a snake, snake handler. Even AMLO in Mexico, the populist leftist, uh, is an evangelical. Like more of a Jimmy Carter type of evangelical, I guess. So either way, I think Catholicism in America is dissolving in the twin jaws of the, of the, of the solidly Protestant American uh, uh, reproducing class and of the... Uh, 
and of the the Latino. Man, Zoroastrianism, very fascinating. How do you fumble the bag like that? Can somebody explain the Zoroastrian bag fumble to me? Maybe the thing is the first one can't be it by definition. I think that might be part of it. This is the type of situation where if you're first through the door, you are just unable to manage the contradictions involved in creating this new reality, ripping this hole in the fucking American human psyche. Uh, I don't know much about AMLO. I haven't been paying too much attention. Uh, I think he's mostly doing good. I think that the, his party's new dominant status in Mexican politics is good. Uh, I love the fact that he trolls America, uh, and I'm in favor of his nationalization projects, but I'm sure he's also fucking the dog in many other ways, as basically everybody is right now. Nobody's doing great. Not good, Bob. So he says it's not a bang fumble, more like an annihilation in the face of the Islamic contest. Well, why wasn't it Zoroastrianism that was leading the conquest? Why didn't Zoroastrianism sweep over the fucking continent instead of saying settled sort of in the Iranian plateau there? Why didn't it spill over into the fucking uh, desert where we know from what happened with the Muslims, it was just ready to catch fire? Well, there's your problem. They weren't evangelical. You blew it. And maybe once again, that's because the first one will not be evangelical. doesn't have to be. It's only later, after further developments, and you get a Judeo and then a Christian tradition, that somebody can come along and create a fighting faith that is able to assimilate the concept of modern politics rather than go to war with it and be parasitic on it the way that Christianity is. You had to be born into it, huh? Well, there you go. Same thing with Judaism. Like the first books of the, the first religions of the book have to be limited in that way because it is knowledge that binds and knowledge can only be localized at this point. But later, you know, once greater, uh, the accrual of technology around imperial nodes like the Romans and later Byzantines, you're creating a more developed subject. You're create, you've got, uh, you've got the, the spread of like literacy and uh, expansion of trade routes, just increased population in general. And there's a new understanding that like, you know, uh, to, to that, 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 that monotheism can be can sustain itself beyond the locality, can sustain itself without a specific understanding of the word. Of course, what manages this new reality, though, see, this is the thing. How are they able to sustain this new thing where, oh, we clearly don't understand, we are clearly are not on the same page about what Muhammad meant by X, Y, and Z. We clearly have different understandings of what this means, vastly different ones. Let's put a pin in that for now and conquer all these unbelievers. And they used essentially free real estate to assert their creed the same way we've created the secular American constitutional creed. The Arabs began almost immediately a project of conquest that allowed for the division of spoils. 
to make up for the fact that, oh, we're not really on the same page here. And then, of course, then you're at the mercy of the ups and downs of the market, of crop rotations, of cycles of weather. And after a long enough time, you can no longer manage contradictions and you have another civil war, you have another breakdown. And it's the cycle that dominates everywhere until capitalism emerges and breaks it, breaks history, breaks the wheel of time, stops the flow uh, between and within states and, 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 and ways of being and relationships to capital and production and metaphysical concepts. It becomes frozen in amber. Which is why I really want to do this show about the 17th century crisis. Because, one, I think it's fascinating to actually see blow by blow what goes into capitalism emerging uh, in response to the inability of dying feudalism to handle the contradictions of the moment. But then also, notice, hey, we had this climate and economic crisis from this exhausted system that could not reform from within. And this new thing emerged and humans continued. And like, yeah, now we're in the terminal descent of this new system, intersecting with another upsurge in environmental externalities, undermining the fundamental dynamics that sustain the order. And new things will emerge. New structures will emerge as they did before. So like, oh, how can I put my children up to this? What? To anything. Birth, death. The apocalypse, which is always happening, it is only to be human to do that. It is nothing, you cannot be condemned for doing it. No one would condemn you, and I would argue your children will not condemn you. You're imagining, oh, I would condemn my parents if this happened. But remember, you didn't have that experience. You had the experience with your parents that you actually had, where you you know, probably never were that close, or if you are, you've drifted apart, as everyone does, and under the fucking... The, the, it, the dark matter of capitalism pushing us against one another. If you imagine if things were that much worse for you, that you would see them in the same light, oh my God, why did you bring me into the world? But like a child of crisis is one that you're going to grow, is going to grow together with those who are living with it and, and struggling with them. I don't think anyone would say that they condemn anyone for making... Uh, Making life. Someone wants to know, how do you convince people to maintain humanism because the lack of hope breeds apathy? And the thing is, not for long. Like, I think everybody has to get it out of their system, you know? Uh, They have to deal with uh, the reality. It's essentially an adult version of how when you're a kid, you find out the sun's going to blow up someday. I I did not really like the Spike Jones where the wild things are. I thought it was like, oh, adults putting their adult shit on this kid's book. Come on, man. Just let them have their own thing. But the fact that like what triggers this kid freaking out and wanting to flee into the woods and hang out with James Gandolfini is finding out in school that the sun will blow out one, blow up one day. And I know a lot of other people have said that that is, for a modern kid, that is like the, 
the psychic cleaving because it like takes you out of paradise and it like introduces death uh, and with it end and and all these questions that shape the rest of your understanding of the world around you for the rest of your life. And so I thought that was uh, a a, pot- a a good observation. The rest of it not so great. But the thing is, like, you come to terms with it, and your life is this process of coming to terms with it. But the thing that it's all rested on is, yes, I will die, but I have some control over what that means. I can plan into the future, basically. I can invest in things that haven't yet happened. It can be worth it for me to delay gratification in the moment because it will pay off later on. For that to be true, I have to have a certain baseline sense of uh, belief that... My material circumstances will maintain themselves. And all of our grappling with consciousness and uh, mortality happens in that context. Directing, trying to direct the future. Trying to direct our ourselves and those we love to whatever we all decide is happiness or the good. Whatever social value we're, we're, we're tacking around. Well, this is a generation, not the first ever, but the first since we have created the stable uh, Western capitalist subject who cannot take for granted their continued existence under the conditions of their lives. That if they keep following the rules, they will keep getting the same results. They've lost the faith. They have been told that, no, the sun's not going to blow up 8 billion years from now. Meaning, oh, that means everything is going to go away and death is final. No, no, no. It's going to blow up in uh, three weeks. It's going to, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's going to blow up in, what is it now, six years? Remember AOC, when she brought the, they introduced the Green New Deal, the, the scare concept was we have eight years or something to get on the right track. Okay, the sun's going to fucking, the, then the sun's going to blow up in eight years. And how are you supposed to manage that? When the assumption that you have mastery over your life is the under, underlying premise of Western individualism, the thing that makes all of our consumer choices meaningful to us. This is a first. We are back to those people in the 17th century who, by the way, all, even before the 30 years war started, assumed they were in the last days, assumed the world would be ending. They were either terrified of it or they were welcoming it because they thought God would bring heaven on earth. But one way or another, it was over in their lifetime from Martin Luther on, basically, from the 1500, from 1500, which is a freighted, uh, 1,500 years since the birth of Christ, freighted uh, numbers in the book of Daniel. You have the same sort of birth of, 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 uh, of fervor and a desire for religious reckoning, changing material conditions. Uh, at the at the thousandth anniversary, and that was directed by the church and by the ruling authorities into the Crusades. Now, in the 17th century, they can't do that anymore because the fucking Turks have wiped them off the board and are, in fact, encroaching on Europe. Where does it go? It goes internally. It goes in these new, in this new uh, confessional war that masks a uh, a struggle for power among the elite. Uh, the, the elite of Europe.
But yeah, uh, the, the Catholic Church responded to Luther by saying, uh, you're writing the, these articles in German. You are publishing the Bible in German. Uh, do you have any idea what you're doing? These fucking rubes cannot understand this stuff. If you just give it to them, it will make them go insane. And the thing is, if you look at what happened in the next hundred or so years of European history, it is unarguable that the Catholics were correct and that the laity of Europe could not handle being their own pastors as Luther wanted them to be. They couldn't handle it. They flew off into murderous fratricidal violence. And then they created this new, this new fucking pagan god of capitalism to take the burden off of their shoulders. Anyone who wants to know about the Reformation in broad strokes, I cannot recommend highly enough Dermid McCullough's The Reformation. One of those great magisterial type books. You know, like sort of, it's, a, it's, a, it's the battle cry of freedom for the Reformation. Uh, and one thing I really like about it is that he's an old Oxford Don and he's like a, he's like an ironic Anglican. Like he basically, he's a, he's a Christian who likes Anglicanism because it's the ironic uh, Christian denomination. Like everybody understands it's kind of a joke. They're like winking the whole time. But it's also just, it's, it's got a very human, it's got a very, um, sympathetic voice. There's clear understanding that everybody involved is like struggling to understand the world in their own terms. Uh, but of course, you know, on top of this, this is all happening on top of a huge violent churn of, uh, of material conflict. As the dynastic competition in early modern Europe creates a unsustainable level of violence due to the technological uh, multiplying forces of the military revolution. Oh, you know we're going to talk about the Solemn League of the Covenant. The whole last episode of the, of, the, of the series is about England. We're like, okay, so that's what Europe, how's how Europe ended up in 1648. This new order is emerging. This one's Westphalian conception. This creates, this is essentially the starting gun on a new... Uh, framework for dynastic competition than had existed during the medieval and earlier periods. This is a new way of competing, a new understanding of politics, a new secularization of state authority. Let's go. Who's going to win? Motherfucking England. And so then we'll just rewind and the last episode will be sort of like Kaiser Soze, the reveal at the end of Usual Suspects you see him walking away and his limp goes away. It's just like, oh, well, all these guys were doing this on the continent. These motherfuckers in their little shitty island were crafting this social bio-war weapon. This social, this, uh, social political, economic bio-weapon that was going to end up coring out the brain stems of everyone on Earth. We are recording Hinge Points right now. Someone asked about Hinge Points. We've recorded three episodes of a new six-episode season, six season. I have to say, we have guests this season, and it's been a huge boost. I think these are, uh, honestly, all of these are better than last season. I know last season was so great, wasn't it? 
We love the hinge points. And yet, now, they're not even better. They made them better, folks. They brought in guests, and they're talking up the questions. They're having a good time. Yeah, Danny will be there, too. Why did the guy think he was Jesus's brother? This is, of course, referring to the uh, progenitor of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, the guy who went crazy after failing his SATs for the last time, or no, the second to last time, and had went into a fugue state, came out believing himself to have met God, to met God's son, and to have been told that he was God's younger brother. And I think it's because... Uh, the Qing dynasty had reached its terminal decline in a condition of accelerating externalities because that mid six that mid nineteenth century that's a doozy, huh? From like fourteen eighteen from nineteen from eighteen forties until eighteen uh, like seventy, you've got this period of massive convulsive violence. Uh, of course, the American Civil War is just a small part of it. Twenty million, thirty million people dying in China, and that is also period of agricultural crisis of blight you know uh and the at this point exhausted ching uh were unable to meet the challenges but nothing had emerged internally to challenge it yet uh the old religious structures the old civic uh religions and virtues of confucianism and folk religion had basically all been totally uh taken over and instrumentalized by the Qing dynasty. So there is no way to, uh, to articulate opposition to, um, to the empire. Now, the only way left, there were two ways left. One was banditry. There was a huge amount of, uh, there were pirates, river pirates and shore pirates and bandits who absolutely plagued the Chinese hinterland and in many places constituted the nearest thing to actual governance. Because they controlled the actual territory and the and the and the routes, and and the state couldn't penetrate there, and a lot of those people were basically what later would get called social bandits, who are bandits and criminals and who do rob uh, travelers and stuff, but also organize like a oppositional political framework outside of the control of the the, the center. Um, and the other is religious secret societies. Now, most of these are Taoist. Some of them are uh, dedicated to, you know, the older uh, folk religions of China. Some are Buddhist. And that tradition is is long going. And many revolts against imperial power have the cloaking of these institutions. And in fact, there is simultaneous to the rise of the Taiping, there is a Taoist, uh, I believe it's called the White Lotus Rebellion occurring. And uh, uh, the Taiping, the early Taiping, are able to use the White Lotus Rebellion as sort of a cover to uh, organize while the government was busy trying to stomp that out. But like this young man, like he wants a language to articulate his specialness in the face of his uh, humbling uh, and a way to articulate the foreignness, the alienness of the, the Manchu who rule over China uh, and to you know, affirm himself and affirm traditional folk Chinese religion. And 
paradoxically, the figure who is best able to do that is this Western imported figure of Jesus Christ, who is inherently a figure of millenary expectation wherever he appears. And that is one of the contradictions at the heart of Western Christianity. And it's because the Roman Empire had co-opted it, had co-opted a faith born out of oppression by the Roman Empire, and then basically almost overnight turned it into the official imperial religion. And that basically twisted the psyche of it. I mean, Nietzsche talks about this. And it creates this like psychotic break within the minds of Western Christians. And this new, what Nietzsche called the slave morality is born. But here's this figure of Christ who has emerged from the foreign world, which had also just humbled China. Remember, this is the exact same time of the Opium War, the first Opium War, when uh, England just hides the Chinese Navy uh, to essentially force them to accept pallets of fucking opium to strictly to improve the balance of trade between China and England. Pure, absolutely bloodless capitalist um, logic. Uh, We really don't talk enough and emphasize enough, and I don't know if you even could, the monstrous reptilian nature of the uh, Roman of the uh, 19th century British Empire. Uh, it is, I mean, it is in every respect a successful Nazism. Uh, Nazism before mass politics, basically, which is why, you know, it has such a lower death count in Europe, which is why we remember it so relatively fondly. So, you know, the Chinese authorities already lost the mandate of heaven to these Europeans by having to uh, uh, submit to them and admit in all this opium that destroyed communities and destroyed lives and uh, give over these ports to turn them into dens of sin and Western uh, degradation. They, as surely as any emperor in the past, had lost the mandate of heaven. Maybe the god of these Europeans, uh, you know, can be used and what they what he he did not this is what's interesting about the the theology of Taiping is that he was really not trying to christianize china he was not trying to convert them to christianity a lot of his early europeans and american supporters thought that's what he was doing but the reason he was able to get gain such success in the hinterland among like unlettered hakka uh, laborers and peasants is that he said I am God's younger brother. He had the emperature of this this powerful figure that they had maybe heard about from the Western missionaries. And he tells me that the Manchu have imposed, have perverted the teachings of Confucius to turn the Han Chinese away from the worship of the one true God, the Chinese Godhead who, who, who dominated like the pagan pantheon of pre-imperial China that Confucianism basically got put on top of and put on top of for the direct purpose of maintaining the imperial state. And so this is like a cultural critique of like religion's function uh, in a given social mode. But of course, you know, because the language wasn't really extant to do class analysis, they made it into an ethnic thing because the Qing dynasty were not Han Chinese. They were uh, a um, they were a nomadic 
Turkic tribe, uh, similar to the 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 Mongols and, and the Tamarids and the, the Taters, the, that entire band of, of of civilization that really organizes China towards empire from the beginning, because the threat of uh, horse invasion is what keeps China such a massive polity for such a long time because internal divisions are essentially impossible to maintain given the, the constant threat. Europe is safe from other than like fitful Mongol incursions that can't be sustained and the Hun, who at the end of the day are not able to extend themselves that much farther than the Hungarian uh, steppe. And so that's why Europe, after the fall of Rome, stays these medium-sized powers that all fight each other until capitalism emerges among them. It's a a carcinogenic environment that leads to the creation, almost inevitably, of a tumor. So these taters had been brought in by the failing Ming dynasty, which collapsed in the mid-17th century, the same time that the Thirty Years' War is happening, for the same reason, the Little Ice Age is destroying the agricultural basis, not only of European late feudalism, but also Chinese imperial rule. And so the Ming lose the, the mandate of heaven. Uh, a local postal worker leads a successful bandit revolt that marches into the capital and takes over the Forbidden City, which had been another feature of imperial politics going back to the beginning of uh, the creation of the Chinese state. There is this cyclical process by which once an empire has been exsanguinated of strength at the top, if a uh, ecological catastrophe happens, some rebel will emerge to claim power and start a new dynasty. And that is what would have happened, except for the fact that as the Ming were falling, a Ming general who commanded a pass by the top of the Great Wall allowed a group of Manchu, an army of Manchu, 30,000 strong, to come across the border so that they could jointly defeat this upstart. And they are. They're able to defeat this guy, this guy who's he's going to start the new dynasty, and like two weeks later, he's fucking turfed and dead. But of course, at that point, the Manchu have no reason to stop, and they begin the great work of conquering all of China. And it takes them decades and it kills millions and millions of people. And there's resurgences of Ming support. But eventually, by the end of the 17th century, they have established their domination. But it's by the mid-19th century, they have reached the point where the Ming were when they took power. And so they can be pointed to as this alien foreign power that has imposed this foreign religion, this false religion, only for their benefit. And that Christ and his younger brother can help guide Chinese people back to the, the Godhead, which like that, the, the God he gestured towards was a real feature of Chinese folk religion. Uh, as you know, uh, there is a Godhead in Hinduism. There's always one God at the end of the day, right? And, and, and the Taiping promised to bring back this God and the reverence for this God. And they went crazy. I mean, they did some crazy stuff about it. Very fascinating. They divided genders rigorously in faith. Like uh, they, men and women uh, went to separate services. There was no commingling 
and or in public places. Men and women were not supposed to appear in public in the same places. Sort of Wahhabist in that respect. But the army was fully gender indicated, uh, integrated, in the early era anyway. Uh, women were fighting alongside men uh, against the, Ming ar- uh, the, the, the Qing armies. So, like, it worked. Like, And I got to say, I've said this before, but I really think that Marx takes the place of Christ uh, amongst in the same context of rural, sustained economic crisis uh, that happens in the 20s and 30s. Because the Chinese Communist Party starts out as an orthodox, working-class-based party. Their strength is in the city, Shanghai in particular. They organize among factory workers. They understand the worker to be the agent of history, just like the Bolsheviks. Uh, and they have, their, their policy is directed by Moscow towards that end. And Stalin insists throughout the 20s that the communists needed to cooperate with the nationalist forces under Chiang Kai-shek uh, and just like worm their way in. Path of least resistance, which was always Stalin's advice because he was a fucking coward. Sorry, he was. His instinct was self-preservation at the expense of everything else. And at the end of the day, he was just one fucking man. But eventually, the, the, uh, the Shanks forces are able to isolate and massacre the urban base of the party. Uh, there's an attempt at a general strike in Shanghai, and it leads to a general butchery of the Communist Party. They flee to the countryside. And there, Mao starts organizing those same Hakka peasants who had flocked to the banner of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom and uses a critique of the given system that is organized around the writings and ideas of this European interloper to make sense of and contextualize their lives and give them a goal to stream for. And the Taiping emphasized land reform and land redistribution as a key component of their economic agenda. And where they went, they killed landlords and redistributed land. Now, mostly the rural economy collapsed under the Taiping because it was a constant war zone. That's why 20 million people died of starvation uh, and disease. All right, a couple more questions. Somebody's recommending Melville's The Confidence Man. I mean, my, Melville is who he is because he was set, He was there at the font and he, he understood what was happening. Like the people who, who the, the writers and thinkers who really have withstood the test of time for like actual reasons of merit, not because they made somebody money. Like that's a whole different group of guys. The ones who have sustained themselves like Marx and like Melville did it because they were able to stand at a historical nexus of overwhelming power, and instead of being destroyed by it or overwhelmed by it, were able to divine some significant tributary within it and describe it. Marx, one of the biggest of all, of course. But think of how many brilliant minds of Europe saw the cataclysmic eru- eru- eruption of capitalism in the mid-19th century 
and decided that the explanation involved people's head shapes. They started fucking measuring skulls. Just hysteric nonsense. But they were left without explanation. They were left agog. And a guy like Melville, he understood what America was. He understood what what the frontier meant. And Charles Olson wrote a book about how like the Pacific, the Pacific Ocean, in Moby Dick specifically, figures as this graveyard, really. I mean, it literally is the graveyard of the Pequod and of and of Ahab, but it's the graveyard of America because it's the end of the dream. Like he got that in the 1840s, for God's sakes, when he was like incredibly horny for Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was an absolute, um, like by the numbers, doe-faced Democrat. His best friend was Franklin Pierce. They were drunks together. I think that, uh, I kind of think that they drank together. Pierce drank because of, you know, his family horrors and traumas. And uh, Hawthorne drank because he was gay. But yes, Confidence Man, a great book about, about the American need to be told some story. And one of the key things about the story is somebody else has to suffer. It's not just, it is not just uh, salvation. It is damnation, without which salvation means nothing. Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian said that one of the pleasures of heaven would be the ability to observe the suffering in hell and smell the burned flesh and hear the screams. Oh, did we get raided or something? Jesus Christ. Holy shit. When did that? Holy fuck. Oh, my God. The Zoomers are here. I don't know what to do. Oh, God. I feel like I'm at the Chosin Reservoir here. My 30 caliber browning is overheating. Fuck, what was I even talking about? I forgot. Damn, now I'm completely frozen up and staring at this chat because I was like, Melville, yes. Yes. Americans at the end of the day want to be among the elect. America is a machine to make the elect. It's a machine to make winners and losers. And we're supposed to enjoy the suffering of others as much as we enjoy uh, the own advancement of ourselves. And what we find ourselves here now at the end of history is, is a politics that has no more dream of success. We can no longer con each other. It's over. The con's over with. I mean, fucking NFTs are done for. We can't, we can't scam our way out of this. And that means all we can do is uh, hurt one another. We can at least arrange the deck chairs in hell. And we can check and we can stagger the misery and make some people hurt more than others. We can generalize, nationalize hell and then get VIP seats because that's the fantasy of that's the fantasy of like Christian Protestant capitalist individual subjectivity that the thing that we're all stuck in, the thing that we're all captured by completely. is our own subjectivity as the as the as the definition of the universe basically we cannot subordinate it to another thing we cannot conceptually subordinate our consciousness to another thing
And so that means we have to live the contradiction of an limitless eternal consciousness, a Godhead, and physical finite bodies that we know from rational observation of the universe, the same thing that tells us that we're the center of it, that we're also going to end. That is an uncontainable and unresolvable contradiction. We spend our life trying to make it make sense through a combination of sublimation, distraction, uh, and self-destruction. Oh, somebody said we were good on the best show. Thank you. That was an incredible honor. Being on the best show was amazing. So we got about 12,000 of these motherfuckers on here at one point, and then they realized what this was and what I was going to be talking about, and it immediately dropped to 8,000. I'll see how long I can keep these. I got to actually, I was going to, I was going to go. I have to be somewhere, but I kind of want to hang around for at least a little bit just to see how long it takes me to walk these motherfuckers, because I have no idea what you Zoomers are getting out of this. Oh, there they go. Oh, no. Where's it going? It's going up? Oh, God, it's going up. Fuck. So does Hassan ever actually play any games on the stream? I was always wondering that. Like, it's a Twitch streamer, but does he actually play the games? No games? He doesn't play games. Interesting. Would you guys prefer to see him play a game, or would that be distracting? I feel like I'm his... uh I'm doing his, like, um, customer service. I'm like the guy in the room with the two-way mirror going like, okay, uh, did you like that about it? What would you like to see Hassan do in the next fiscal quarter? All right. Well, I'm, I was doing a uh, question and answer session, so I'm going to try to get a few more questions. It'll be tough, though, because this chat is moving much faster than it was before you guys all showed up. So let's see if I can get, get anything. I don't know what the hell anyone does with the with the scroll and and on his ch- idea or on his channel because you can't see anything. The zoomers have left. Oh my god, where are they? Where are the zoomers? Are they on TikTok? Are all the zoomers on TikTok? Is that what's happening? I would love to play Victoria Three on stream. But the thing is, I can't be in charge of any of it. I need an experienced hand. Is the water turning the frogs gay? Kind of, yeah. This is what's so frustrating about Alex Jones. I've talked about this before. I talked about it on the episode about conspiracy theories I did on the pod a few years ago. There's this fucking chemical called atrazine that they just dump out into the fucking atmosphere because it's cheap to do so that fucks with the DNA of amphibians and, like, f- mutates their genitals and shit. Like, uh, turns, makes them, like, uh, hermaphroditic and, and, and infertile. Disrupts their, their reproduction. Mutates the shit out of them. Real thing that really happens. But how does this nitwit define that to his people? They're turning the frogs gay. The company has got a machine where they're like, we want to see male frogs fucking other male frogs. Which takes the reality, which is very clear for anyone to understand, and that fucking simple-ass farmers and factory workers 
And kids on the fucking street corner understood a hundred years ago, which is that there's a company that makes money by doing that and turning it into there's a cabal of weirdos who want the frogs to be gay and then also want you to be gay. And that's why people want to say he's a fucking narc. But no, I think that he is just responding to where the market is. At the end of the day, a Marxist analysis of conspiracies is unsatisfying because it denies narrative. It denies good guys and bad guys. It denies you redemption. It denies you a fantasy that you're going to you're going to get all the evidence one day and they're all going to go to jail and there's going to be a big courtroom scene where they're convicted and they everybody hoists you on your fucking shoulders and leads you out of the fucking courtroom. You're going to you're going to give the thumb drive to the reporter and it's going to be on the front page and everyone's going to go to jail. These systems produce this. The systems can't indict themselves. And so in the marketplace for people who want a conspiracy understanding of their world, they're not going to listen to a boring Marxist to talk about this shit. They're going to talk, listen to who, are, who will ever give them the best story. And a totally cynical, hollow performance artist like Alex Jones, I mean, honestly, at a certain point, he could realize it doesn't matter anyway. I might as well get paid. And if that's what he's doing, it's the Sandy Hook, the thing is the Sandy Hook, Shit is the bridge too far. That that makes me think that he actually is just completely hollow. And so he's like, put me in coach. And he goes from being ambiently anti-establishment in the 90s and aughts, when that's still just sort of an incohate thing, to becoming just another fucking Republican as soon as Trump arrives like fucking Zeus to give direction to ambient Republican petty bourgeois grievance. I think public ed is doomed. I feel like we're going to get to a point where it's going to be charter schools, private fucking tutoring. I honestly feel like the next level for, uh, and it'll be honestly the cheaper option eventually pretty soon, given like rents in urban areas, the cheapest option for the urban bourgeois will be to hire like tutors, like the fucking Medici's had. Like you have, like being urban bourgeois means you have a, you have a maid. You might have a, if you're doing pretty well, you might have a cook. But if you have a kid, you absolutely have a fucking tutor. It's, it's de rigueur. There'll be that. Then like the remain, there'll still be like the really expensive schools for the super rich people who want to guarantee their kid entree through the network. But for like the striving middle class, it'll be tutors. And who then the tutors will be the failing to strive, downwardly mobile educated, those college loan beset losers. And they get to live a gig economy life instead of being public educators with pensions and uh and cost of living raises. And then there'll be cheaper public uh, private schools for you know middle class people that'll basically be as good as present private school uh, public schools, and then there will probably be the public schools left as essentially uh, detention centers for the unruly and unteachable, whatever, however they want to define that, which will make them essentially prisons. That will be public school. The Foucaultian fantasy of school as prison 
will be finally and totally immunitized. And by the way, that's why all these dipshits, like, like this is, what are we talking about? You want to talk about whether it's feudal as a political economy? As a social relation, it is feudalism, in my opinion, because it is bilateral relationships based on labor rather than, um, than any kind of public space. And people understand that. A lot of people who is job it is to just like stare into the guts, the chicken entrails of, um, of the internet all day and then spew it out on podcasts and shit. Uh, they recognize, oh, these, these currents are coming. And so some people want to get in with the people who are going to have the good courts. They want to become courtiers. Because, like, what are the jobs left? We've talked about all the horrible gig jobs. What is a non-gig, non-alienated job left? One of the few will be somebody who hangs around with the remaining elite and kind of keeps them company the way that the courtiers would in feudal Europe. And that means kissing the ass of the nobles. And so what is the new flavor of the intellectual monk among the, uh, the uh, intellectual post-left, whatever it is? It's Oxfordianism. It's Edward de Vere. It's the argument that Shakespeare didn't write his plays. Like, why the hell would you care about that? Now, it's very simple. If... Shakespeare is just some up-jumped crow, upstart crow, some, like, hustler from the fucking middle strata. Then the entire Burkean uh, argument, the aesthetic argument for capitalism and and whatever post-capitalist structure we're going to create, is that it allows the wealthy to concentrate resources and build an aesthetic and cultural world that we can all inhabit. And that you cannot have that sort of cultural production uh, democratized. It will turn to dirt. Well, if Shakespeare was just some guy from Stratford, then that's not true. It's no good. So Shakespeare has to be the Earl of Oxford. He has to be. Edward de Vere with his Oxford education, his Latin knowledge, sitting on his father's estate. Oh, man. Capitalism is certainly not halal. I mean, Islam formally prohibits the charging of interest, which is the, that is the uh, germ of all capitalism right there. Like, interest is the, is the logic the drive, the engine. It's the, it's the powerhouse of the cell. It's fucking uh, mitochondria. And it's banned in Islam. Right, Christianity did too until Protestantism came along to get rid of that problem.
But anyway, I would rather not live in the gilded bunker of one of my new neo-dukes uh, than have to hang around with him and like probably do coke all day and, and just tell him, yes, absolutely, sir. You can tell, oh, yes, you can tell by the, by the way he uses language in Winter's Tale that this could not be some base-born son of a trollop this is the mark of a of a of a dead of a austere and prodigious bloodline, like your fucking Benny Jesuit. No, thank you. Wahhabism is the future of America. I mean, it, it's the only live wire among the major religions, right? I mean, and that has the capability to, like, be networked and to transmit. Like, Hinduism is obviously a live wire, but that's because vast swaths of India have still are still living in, like, medieval rela- social relations, for God's sake. But with modern technology and, and, and a political economy. And, uh, you know, Hinduism reflects that. It's not going to move over the world. It can't. Islam can. And it's live. There are people who really believe in it. Nobody really believes in Christ anymore. And uh, yes, 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 of course people do. But I mean at a demographically meaningful level, people believing that can act that way, as opposed to answer a fucking trivia question from a pollster about whether they believe in God or not. But I think the thing that will stop Islam from conquering the globe will just be the breakup of supply chains. And that means you're just going to get weird, weird sort of quasi-pagan cults, like new new regimes of power consecrated by new rituals of mostly violence and domination, because that's how you do it. Uh, Fury Road is a great movie on this the way that they are able to meticulously describe how primitive accumulation uh, wraps around like populations and builds cultural structures that defend and, and uh, validate it. This is interesting. Somebody says, what about a ghost dance for this dying civilization? Maybe QAnon is our ghost dance. Maybe this whole, this whole apocalyptic, like you can draw a straight line from the left behind George W. Bush cultural heyday of like Christian conservatism to the Tea Party under Trump or under Obama to Trump to QAnon to just like the MAGA movement that it's part of. And it's, all, it's, it's religion, it's formal religion fusing finally with politics, the culmination of a 50-year project to politicize Protestantism that began in the 70s. And if that's the case, like, maybe it is the live wire, the left, only live because it's political, not religious, the spiritual part is all gone, that might get people to actually operate off of its... I mean, my God, that guy in fucking Cincinnati getting lit up in the cornfield. 
I do think you're going to have like early kernels pop it on that, and who knows how how bad that gets. Maybe that does turn into some sort of cleansing violence from like the most unstable fringe of a movement that will largely just go along with whatever the program is because we're Americans and that's what we do. I thought I had a thing for the bulletproof glass, and I did not. It's interesting what kind of phenomenon you get when societies come under this sort of pressure. Like the, the ghost dance, for those who don't know, was a social phenomenon of, uh, of apocalyptic uh, ritual uh, around that, it, that was spread by a prophet uh, that was attempting to direct the, that was attempting to um, address the situation, which for Western Native Americans was in fact apocalyptic. There was an attempt to make their their social lives conform to the condition they were in, and it led to this like mass outbreaks, as they were called, uh, of uh, ritualized dance, and the Western and the American over uh, powers, of course, were horrified of it. Broke it up, uh, carried out the uh, uh, carried out the massacre at Wounded Knee to help put it down. But that also happened to the Zulu after they began encountering uh, European colonialists in the form of the Dutch Boers and later the English, uh, there was a child prophet of the Zulu who commanded that they execute, they kill all of their cattle. And this was a pastoral people who lived by herding and, and, uh, and milking cows and stuff. And uh, just killed all of their fucking cows. And then there was just mass starvation because it didn't lead to them being invulnerable to white bullets and then uh, win back the continent. But that sort of thing is uh, inevitable when you have a cultural vocabulary, understanding of the world, social structure that is internally coherent, cannot be challenged from within, but is in terminal crisis, facing conditions that will destroy it, and the people within it are aware of that and trying to manage the contradiction. And these sort of apocalyptic movements arise out of the attempt to square that circle. And I think that's what we're seeing now in, in a much more muted and less intense way because, you know, we are Americans and we're relatively comfortable at the end of the day. But you are seeing these formations come into being attempting to expiate uh, the, the cognitive dissonance of living in a country where it has these institutions and social structures that are inviolable and that you incorporate deeply into your understanding of the world and the good and that which is to be defended and yet are leaving you deeply underserved. And in fact, now, self-consciously doomed. I think we're going to see more and more, but how, what, what direction it comes to is going to be determined at the, at, the, at the much more base level than any I could sketch out here, which is the frustrating end to all attempts at speculating at this incredibly febrile moment in history.
We love our history moments to be febril, don't we? I know I do. All right, I'm still going to, I know I have a lot, I still have a lot of followers, but um, I'm going to wrap it up. I don't want to overstay my welcome. I do have somewhere to go, but I'll do probably do like maybe one or two more questions. So somebody says, why do I think Protestantism was so harmful? I, I try not to use that kind of language because the end of the day, at the end of the day, I love using that dumbass phrase. Capitalism is this necessary lubricant to the emergence of these new social relations. They cannot withstand these old ways of being, these old categories, and with their old definitions. They need new terms and new terms for the old categories. So the Protestantism is going to emerge. Now, Luther makes it very specific because of his genius and ability to embody the moment, but the phenomenon is like a generalized trend. Um, but once it happens, yeah, it accelerates capitalism dramatically, and now it, and it ends up midwifing what we have now, which is this post-Christian, secular Western individual, individualism, uh, self-worship, whatever you want to call it. Do I visualize time through a space dimension in order to interrogate my metaphysics? Buddy, you bet your ass I do. I love imagining time, events as three-dimensional structures, rotating them in my mind, if you will. Ooh, is capitalism a demon summoned by John D? I'll tell you right now, I would watch or read the movie or book. Honestly, I would like to make it. Because you, John D, for those who don't know, is this a figure of Renaissance England and Central Europe who stands astride this, uh, this historical nexus that from which the scientific revolution emerges, but which is in every respect midwifed by alchemy, Kabbalah, mystical ritual. Like it is not rationalism that gives us the, the enlightenment. It is in fact a devotion, a deep devotion to a scientific interrogation of uh, the spiritual realm. And it all starts with this guy, John D who's a court magician basically to, Elizabeth, and he goes and into the he goes to the court of Ferdinand, the Holy Roman Emperor in Bohemia, or Rudolf rather, Holy Roman Emperor in Bohemia. Uh, influences the uh, Rosicrucian movement later in the Rhineland. John D's nuts, yes, and it all starts with Giordano Bruno getting killed by the Church. And maybe at that point they decide we're going to break this thing in half one way or the other. And they summon Lucifer. They summon the light bringer in the form of the capitalist Western subject who can turn any faith, any religious 
truth into its curdled and monstrous reverse. And then uh, to destroy the world with it. Oh, I would like to raid somebody else. Is QAnon on? I would love to uh, raid QAnon Anonymous if I knew how. But I don't know if I'll be able to because I'm not very good at this stuff. Raid channel, there we go. I'm not seeing it, I'm sorry. I, I looked at the Twitch channel, and I went to Raid channel, but now I can't see it. I, I tried to enter it in, and it didn't pop up. I, I'm being an insane fucking boomer right now. I'm a boomer. I'm booming. Oh, Julian Field. Okay. Or Field. All right. Good. There we go. All right, guys. This is perfect. All right. Thank you for that. That was very helpful. I'm going to now switch you guys over to QAnon Anonymous, Julian Field. Uh, he'll, he's me spitting truth. Those guys are really good. Bye-bye.